So here's the problem. I got up this morning and the sink just won't drain. Yeah, my pet turtle must have gotten down there somehow. Uh, I can hear him rattling around down there. I mean, you know, what do you suggest that we... Wait, what? You, you just jumped like three times your height. How did you do that? Okay, uh, well, we've est- we've established that. I mean, it's not that we're not impressed, but yeah, I and mean, it, it just it doesn't it doesn't seem related to our drain problem. Doesn't that hurt your head? I mean, you keep on smashing into the ceiling over and over again. Yeah, there, there's blood kind of coming down. There's plaster raining down oh, I think on I our, s- our heads. I think I see brain. Uh, we should probably get you to a hospital. <sighs> you know. I, I use the sink all the time. I use this like every morning. Can you, do you, can we at least make a referral? Do you have any family in the business or anybody you can recommend? Gary, uh, get a tarp. I'm going to take this guy to the ER. Uh, he hasn't blinked since he's been here. I think he might be a little bit concussed. Come, come on, buddy. Let's, let's go. All right. Well, I'll see you later. I... <sighs> Man, you know... Grandpa just, he always gave me three pieces of advice before he died. He said, don't wear suede in the rain. Don't hire the cheapest plumber you can find. You should always watch out for fireballs. This is Watch Out for Fireballs. It's a retro video games podcast. And for this episode, we're talking about Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars. It is a role-playing game uh, that was developed by Nintendo and Square, and it was released in the summer of 1996. Yeah, and this was one of the, this was definitely kind of past the Super Nintendo's heyday. So released near the end of the cycle. It's not the last game released for the system. It's not, you know, 1996 was not even the last year. It was definitely kind of on the other side of the bell curve. The PlayStation had been out for a year at that time, uh, or thereabouts, and the Sega Saturn was uh, was right around that time as well. So the the clock had moved on from 16-bit and well into uh, 32-bit and beyond. So this was definitely kind of a swan song for uh, the system and for Square and Nintendo's relationship, actually. during I remember during this time, uh, during the 16-bit era, Nintendo was kind of the space for traditional JRPGs. I, you know, this is the, the glory period for Square, Final Fantasy IV, um, V in Japan, which we'd eventually get, and six and Chrono Trigger. You know, this was kind of the, the golden age, and this is when I became a, a huge fan. I always thought of that as a Nintendo thing. And... Uh, Eventually, due to, you know, various disagreements of which have been covered uh, ad nauseum in other podcasts, you know, they kind of had a falling out. And it's so strange that one of their last collaborations would be this thing that entwined uh, both of their design philosophies and their mythos. So about the game itself, uh, you know, it, it kind of defies, you know, ex- expectation because most Mario games up to that point had either been platformers or um, crappy educational games, a la Mario is Missing and Mario in Time and 
any of those kind of things. But the way they worked it out is that the game is actually a split between an isometric platforming and action segments and uh, turn-based RPG combat that would be familiar to Final Fantasy fans. Uh, and this kind of split played to both of the specialties of uh, of the game's quote-unquote parents. You know, even within the JRPG elements, there was still this action element. Uh, this game, as far as I know, is the first game to do this. It introduced this element of timed hits. So when you were attacking or blocking, which in a JRPG, you're going to spend 80% of your time in combat, basic attacking or blocking for the most part, um, you can kind of time your, your time a button press to do more damage or have higher defense. And uh, that really kind of underlined this, this blending of genres. And it gave you a reason to pay attention to combat at an RPG. <laughs> which, which, which definitely doesn't, doesn't always happen. And this was one of the first attempts, I feel, to kind of even recognize that problem. You know, there are a lot of games out now that are essentially RPGs and they replace the combat with a, an entirely different game or another mechanic. We also, we have time button presses. You know, you look at Final Fantasy VIII or the Shadow Hearts games, but this was the first time I've seen that. One other thing of note about this game, you know, despite the incredibly rocky period of game translation and localization in the 16-bit and uh, 8-bit eras, this was actually a- an incredible effort on the part of uh, Square and uh, and their translation team to make this not only coherent, but also incredibly funny. You know, funny, real whimsical. Uh, there, there are a few moments I, that are, are laugh out loud or chuckle out loud funny, but it, it's very whimsical and charming throughout. And it maintains that tone really consistently. It sticks to the script and very rarely, not actually towards the end, does it veer into the kind of square side of its parentage and get kind of uh, darker and, uh, and and a bit more esoteric, I guess, um, and kind of underlining the zaniness uh, that permeates the game god i hate that word zany but uh, (laughs) plenty of fun mini games uh that you can play that are nice little diversions from the kind of business as usual aspects of exploring towns and going through dungeons and talking to people it plays against uh some some jrpg trappings and tropes you know and it it seems kind of aware of the the monotony of those things you know it, it brings in the the button press mechanic and the different kind of you know ways you can manipulate the battle system and it breaks things up with these mini games you know it breaks up kind of elements that are traditionally a little static i mean it even you know kind of plays around with navigation whereas in most previous rpgs you'd be moving around in a two-dimensional plane along a grid um, through kind of these uh, static areas. This game, since it take pl- takes place from an isometric perspective, and of course it's a Mario game, jumping and platforming are involved. It's three dimensions as opposed to just kind of you know playing with, with miniatures. It, it doesn't look like looking over a town and moving toys around. You know, the game was really notable not only for these elements, uh, but also for its graphics, which were uh, sprite representations of pre-rendered 3D models. So n- not everyone played this game, but a lot of people played a game called Dronky. Uh, Dronky? Dronky. It was a weird German experimental existential torture game for kids, for children of doctors in Germany. Player player one always won and player two always lost. Yeah, it was it was uh, from the from the Dronkish uh, German design perspective where the desire was not to win. It was just to be the last person to lose. So, <laughs> of course, what I meant to say was Donkey Kong Country, uh, which is a game I, I sort of really hate. But uh, it look, look, looks pretty good, has a, a real unique look, is really pushing the Super Nintendo. Um, that game, as well as this one, really resource heavy. So that'd be a special chip 
put inside the cartridge to help out with this processing, and it made this game expensive as shit. Which wasn't unusual for the time. I mean, the whole Super FX chip uh, thing that was brought in by uh, F-Zero and by Star Fox was kind of carried out uh, into this. Do we do we know how expensive the game was? Because I, I recall going into a secondhand game shop, one that actually still exists today in my town, um, and uh, pricing it shortly after it came out. Um, and I remember it costing uh, either 80 or $90 but uh, mm. games were more expensive back then, and this may have been shortly after the release, so it might have come down. And this is a is a difficult thing to Google because this game is, you know, if you have a sealed copy of this, you're probably one of the five richest kings in Europe. And um, so finding the price, I'm finding sealed copies of it now and then 800 Wii points, which is how much <laughs> it costs on the virtual console. God. It's kind of a weird, weird time, though, because... You didn't have to have a special chip to be expensive back then. I remember RPGs just had kind of an RPG tax. Um, you know, Fantasy Star 2 for Genesis was $80. For some reason, uh, Chrono Trigger was more expensive. I feel like Chrono Trigger was maybe $70. Oh, they charge by the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and now that kind of makes, you know, it, it makes a kind of sense. But no one would do that now. Like, that would be unheard of now. It'd be ridiculous. But at the time, that was the norm. You're going to make me read? What? No, I, I, <laughs> you're going to have to cut the price on this just a little bit because if, if effort's going to be involved on my end. But, you know, that price staying up as high as it did, and for most of those games, you know, probably has to do, you know, a lot with its legacy and how, how well regarded it is today. And, and for as much of a following as this game has... It's not seen an actual official sequel due to the the feuds that took place between you know Nintendo and, and Square. They wouldn't work together again until uh, fairly recently when they made a basketball game for the DS together, uh, <laughs> Mario Hoops Three on Three, which makes Super Mario RPG the second weirdest game to feature Mario. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a, no no official sequels. There's a lot of spiritual succession. Uh, this game kind of gave birth to two different um, tracks of spiritual successors. Uh, the Paper Mario games, starting with Nintendo 64, and then the Mario and Luigi series, which began on the Game Boy uh, Advance, I believe. Both of which kind of took the, the, the better parts of Super Mario RPG, the writing, the scenario design, and the localization, and played to those, um, as well as the action uh, command system for the battles. I don't have any experience with the Mario and Luigi games, even though they've been on my my list of, of things I'd probably like and should check out. But uh, Paper Mario for Nintendo 64 was the first uh, Mario role-playing game I played, and I love that game. I, th I feel like, I mean, we'll get into this more when we start talking about kind of our impressions, but I consider, I, you know, I feel like it takes the things that this game does right and, and improves upon them and leaves behind some of the baggage. Which is as things should be. this game is pretty simple uh bowser kidnaps the princess which yes and um <laughs> while mario's the, the kind of twist is while mario's attempting to rescue her a gang of dimensional interlopers led by a man named smithy invades the mushroom kingdom aboard a gigantic sword uh the sword shatters the star road is this the the first appearance of the star road this has to be after mario kart right this is after mario kart that was rainbow road in mario kart the star oh, road yeah, was yeah. in super mario world you're which right. was used yep. as a warp point. 
get it together, Gary. <laughs> it's been a little while since I, I, I played that, even though I, I do love Super Mario World. Um, there are also those bonus stages in the Star World. Tubular. Exactly, tubular. Um, so this sword, it, it shatters the Star Road, uh, scattering star pieces around the world, exactly seven of them, and making it so that no dreams will ever come true again. And uh, it's up to Mario to gather these star pieces and uh, a motley crew, you know, a fellowship to rescue the princess and oust Smithy from from Bowser's castle. This is one of the the points of the game that I felt was a little bit dissatisfying, um, is that they do introduce this this total new new villain. Um, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that the Mario games have ever been noted for their you know great stories or rich mythology or anything, but it reminded me it had a weird kind of Mary Sue feeling to it <laughs> to me, where they just kind of brought in this this guy this badass to defeat you know everyone who we already know. You know, we we have Bowser, who's kind of a the big bad, the closest thing to a badass in the Mario games. There isn't a anybody who's who's tough, but he's kind of the closest thing. And you bring in this person out of left field to to just kind of usurp him out of nowhere. And I I felt and what's going to be interesting about talking about this with you, Cole, is that <laughs> we both have I I don't have a history with this game. You know, I, I played it for the first time this year. I've never had that you know coloring of of being young and playing it. So when I'm going to it as as a Mario fan as an adult, I'm just thinking. Who who the fuck is, is Smith? <laughs> you know, Smithy, like you know, it doesn't help that you don't see him until literally the last you know twenty minutes of the game. Yeah, you only yeah. see they, his they, henchmen, the, the the various weapon creatures that he creates. There's also kind of a weird, you know, the, the the star road is broken, so no dreams will ever come true, and that's kind of a, a weird wishy washy hippie plot point. Not that I'm expe- not expecting any, you know, writers to work through their experience in Nam or anything <laughs> through through the Mario RPG, but I just even at, even at that point, I'm just like, okay, you know. Let's make it clear: we would play the shit out of that game, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be <laughs> indie devs get on it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, um... So the game opens up with this, you know, kind of storm on Bowser's castle, kind of saying, okay, this is something that you know, it's something that you expect. You've seen this song and dance, you know, a thousand times. And in fact, people comment on it like, oh, the princess has been kidnapped. What, again? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so Mario goes and, you know, you have a couple of easy gimme battles uh, that uh, show you the ropes of the combat system, get you acquainted with it. And this section ends actually with a nice little puzzle boss, which uh, I thought was nice. You're kind of starting with what you would almost think would be the last boss of what this game looks like on first impression. You know, you're fighting Bowser, but he's way too powerful to actually attack. So you kind of have to attack around him. You Ultimately, you, you destroy a chain that he's hanging from. You're fighting on two chandeliers, which is, neat little which is kind piece. of strange. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice set piece. It's kind of a weird place to have a fight. But it reminded me a little bit of that square... Uh, first boss thing where you, you fight something with a, a shell or a shield and you don't attack when its shell is up because it does a strong counterattack. You know, Square likes to take these first battles and make them kind of tricky and then never really revisit that <laughs> again throughout the, throughout the next 60 hours. Yeah, after that, you can just go crazy. Hit wherever you want. doesn't matter. So and then one of the nice things is that, you know, the has a pretty strong tutorial in the beginning. Um, it's pretty complete. They're skippable which is awesome. Mercifully. There's some things later in this game that are not skippable. 
that, that I wish that they, they were, but these are skippable, which is nice. And they're still pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, Toad is the one who's giving you the, uh, giving you the, uh, the, the tutorial. He's kind of sassy with you, you know, and it, and it just, uh, it's, it's a very concise way if you do opt to, uh, to see what he did. Uh, you know, even though this is the umpteenth time that I played through the game, I did the tutorial anyway, just because it was kind of like a, oh yeah, that's a good line. The, the first level also starts introducing the weirder elements, the non-Mario elements. Uh, there's a character named Croco. Um, who's a, a crocodile. Um, there's a character called Mac the Knife, which, you know, <laughs> obvious, you know, there's a reference there. And he's, you know, he's, he's pretty tough. He's one of the Smithy's lieutenants, and they're all, they all look like different weapons. Um, he's a smith, so that's kind of the theme he has going on with his dimension. Most of the designs of the new characters I didn't like very much. Um, I don't know if it was because of the Donkey Kong Country, you know, graphics, but Croco, you know, just kind of looked kind of dumb to me. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I wish I could articulate it better, but, you know, as you look at something, you're like, that looks cool. And you look at something else and no, that doesn't look that cool. And he just, he, there's some, some characters later that I think are pretty neat, but uh, initially kind of out the gate, I didn't like the look of the new characters very much. They definitely had a, had trouble with the kind of lizard dragonoid kind of things, because when you find Yoshi's later, uh, they look similarly strange mm -hmm. uh, just with their proportion and the way that they stick out. It is difficult to make heads or tails of some of the, you know, stranger enemies. But when you, once you figure out what they're supposed to be, I kind of appreciated the, the puffy kind of Fisher price, uh, colorfulness of it. It was probably the most colorful game I had played at the time. And uh, it, that that's definitely an aesthetic that has been uh, somewhat lost to us. I know that's a point that's been hammered to death, uh, but uh, still, it's nice to go back and, and see something that cranks it all the way to their side, if, if only just to establish some kind of contrast. I, I, I agree with that. And I would say that, um, you know, my complaints with the, the graphics really do kind of end at the, the character designs. All the color and the, the background, the actual set pieces that you're, you're on all look gorgeous. Yeah. You know, I think that worked really well. You know, speaking of of kind of bad character designs, uh, this is this this is when you get the first you know player uh, character in your party. It's a character named Mallow. Um, he's a, a cloud. He thinks he's a frog. And whenever he cries, it rains. Yep, he he controls the weather. So he's essentially like a chubby little white storm. And uh, he you know he's not. They give him a lot of development in the story, but he's not a very powerful party member. He's nice at the beginning because you don't have access to your area of effect attacks most of your party's attacks only hit one single enemy and there are certain occasions where you're fighting ghosts where mallow's lightning attack are the is the only way that, that you can effectively get rid of them yeah so when you when you find uh, mallow the two of you uh move on to uh pond pipes which is a uh, world two and you you get the first proper dungeon in the game the the caro sewers yeah this is a, a sewer level um, I don't, we should just probably mark out when we play games without sewer levels. Yeah. And, and, and here's one of those things where the, where the dungeons in the game for, for as visually distinct as, as the game is, most of these underground kind of pipe and block dungeons kind of run together because you run into this problem where all of them are just kind of these boxes that are floating in the void. It kind of, you go from room to room in kind of like a, a Zelda one fashion, you know, the, the, in in an individual room, the camera will scroll, but you definitely never get a sense of, of the larger dungeon. And uh, you, you just kind of put your finger on something that I had a, you know, a hard time navigating some of the dungeons. They're not that difficult, but I would, would lose my place, and I think that's why. But the nice part is that this, you know, this level, it ends with a, with a pretty good boss fight where, you know, you'll have one of your characters taken away. I believe the guy's name is Bellamy, and uh, he just devours one of your guys wholesale for, for a second or two. 
but after that, you know, he's kind of a load-bearing boss in that the sewers begin to flood, and you, and you get kicked out into one of the, I think, more fun um, mini-games, the Midas River minigame, where you're being rushed down a waterfall, and you're doing, like, this uh, log flume kind of thing, trying to collect coins, which is actually pretty cool because it shows off some of the graphical capabilities. You know, there's a, there's this nice scale effect where Mario is just this tiny little dot going down, and you're, you know, having them swim over you know to pick things up but it's also kind of a good way to make some money you know it's not that great uh you know because it is difficult to 100 percent it but when frog coins are scarce uh frog coins being kind of like the extra special currency that can be you know be used to buy better items uh this is a good way to kind of bolster your purse it's also one of the first um you know maybe a good time to talk about or one of the first examples of the the way that the game plays with mario mechanics in an rpg context um, you know, so you get money from this game, you get it from random battles, but you also collect coins the same way you would in a Mario game. Um, there are question mark blocks. Um, one of my favorite mechanics in the game is that you, uh, it's pretty rare. I feel like maybe three or four of them, you know, I found in the entire game, but you'll find invincibility stars. <laughs> and, uh, this game, the way that it does random encounters is that they're not random. They're on the map. So theoretically you can avoid them. Um, if you'd like, and a lot of times you can, sometimes you can't. But if you get an invincibility star and you run into these encounters on the map, you win the encounter instantly and you get the experience for it and everything. So it's a really good way to rack up levels. I feel like every time I got a star, everyone in my party levels up at least once. And you leave just this big bloody swath behind you. Not really bloody, but a nice big empty room. <laughs> they, give, they give a nice... That's the Vietnam game that, <laughs> that we were theorizing. Oh man, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm revealing my hand a little bit. I better X out of this design document. No, no, it gives you a nice little... <laughs> sound when you when you like when you run past them and of course that iconic little uh late motif of invincibility and those pop up every once in a while and it's a nice little uh homage because there's this almost kind of a pavlovian response to uh the coin sound or you know the underground tunnel music um and they and they play with those really well might be worth noting the general uh awesomeness of the soundtrack here as well. And before we note that, um, mm -hmm. maybe reflect a little bit on how Vietnam would have gone differently if we had had invincibility stars. <laughs> After this, uh, you know, it does a couple of really interesting things like that. You know, after uh, kind of further along, you end up at a tadpole pond and it's a, a music puzzle um, that actually kind of requires listening to, to notes and, and knowing the music. And for me, this was actually because I played this when I was very young. It was one of my first introductions to music theory. Um, and they give you this kind of little rudimentary uh, MIDI synthesizer uh, where tadpoles will swim up and down a staff and you have to jump to stop them. And then after you play out two bars, it'll it'll play out the little melody. So I would, you know, completely miss the point and not put in the proper combination of notes, but instead, you know, tap out Mary Had a Little Lamb and, and all of that because they succinct, they succinctly explain, you know, the, the solfege scale, you know, do, re, mi and uh it's just an, it's just a neat little way to play with it, and it's a nice little diversion or toy uh, within the game itself. Yeah, I didn't play this when I was younger, but I would have really liked that. I think when I was younger, um, I ended up playing uh, Loom when I was younger, and it has a similar kind of music. You know, it's it's more pervasive in that game, but there's also a, you know the ability to just create music freeform in that game as well. Let's take a moment and reflect on Mario Paint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I love that that Mario Paint synthesizer. 
some of those YouTube videos are just baffling. So shortly after this, you know, kind of out in one of the outside dungeons, you encounter Bowser out in the wild for the first time after he has been kicked out of his castle and had his entire uh, empire usurped. Um, and he's trying to rally his troops and get them back together. Um, and it really highlights how that how Bowser is the funniest character in the game, uh, just because he's so goddamn impotent. Yeah, they play with that a lot. He's he's definitely uh, kind of in denial about his current <laughs> state. That's played for for most of the 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 highest moments of humor in the game. I think are are kind of related. I like yeah. how when he ultimately agrees to let Mario help him instead of like saying, like, okay, you guys can, you know, lend me a hand here. He says, all right, you guys can join the Koopa troop, I guess. Yeah. He, you join him. He doesn't join you, <laughs> which is, which is cute. So after you run into Bowser, you get into this, uh, this maze puzzle. I feel like they kind of front load the alternative gameplay in this. I didn't really realize until looking at these notes, but a lot of the messing with, you know, the, the mini games and kind of messing with, but the structure happens a lot in the beginning. Do you, is that true or is that my imagination? No, I think it's true. And thinking about it now, you know, and kind of the, the, the larger view, that probably explains why the latter chapters of the game feel like such a slog is, is because it really is kind of wandering around the world trying to trigger the right events and fighting people a bunch. Yeah, the, the middle of this game, and we'll get there in just a second, but the middle of this game definitely sags a bit. Um, and one of the kind of experiments with, with breaking that up that doesn't work as well is this forest maze you go through has that navigation thing where you have to, you know, go in the right order you have to choose the directions to exit in the right order. And despite, you know, really good music. And it's, it's the, you know, if you look up super Mario RPG music on YouTube, it's the first result. It's excellent (laughs) music, but it is a, it's real bad kind of game design, real trial and error and very repetitive. If you're looking for like a broader context on that, think about the, the mystery forest in the first uh, Zelda. Yeah. Never, never fun. Never, ever fun. I hate it when games try this. Uh, I, I Maybe I understand it. No, wait, I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, I, can, yeah. I, can anybody, if anybody's listening to this, can think of a reason to do this? You, <laughs> let us know, because I'm really amazed this gets out of playtesting. Like, it just requires you to just be in an, you know, pretty much a static spot for a really long time. You know, where you're just trying things and kind of memorizing, but you're constantly being interrupted by fights you know, it's almost like a Simon, you know, memorization game, but with, you know, tapping A in the middle of it. And it's it's pretty obnoxious. It's probably the worst digression this game takes into to side play. The only excuse I could think of it would be for asset recycling, because mm-hmm. in, at least in this instance, it's the same four way intersection just repeated over and over again. Eventually you get out of it. If you're if you're playing this game now and you try it, and you can't get through it. Just look online. I won't judge you for that. None of us will. Uh, <laughs> eventually, you get to you get to a town and you, you find uh, your your third character, um, Geno, who is another just kind of off the wall non Mario character. He is a doll who happens to be enchanted by a spirit from the aforementioned Star Road, sent to Earth or the Mushroom Kingdom or whatever that is, uh, to uh, help recover the star pieces and uh, restore order in the universe. I liked Geno, partly because he didn't talk that much. He didn't really get in the way of the plot at all. That and uh, he's kind of your high damage dealer, um, at least until you get Bowser in your party. You can really augment that by upgrading his HP uh, whenever you get a chance. So he's a really good uh, complement uh, to your party if you if you uh, opt into using him. Yeah, I, I, I kind of read about that later in looking at the game after I'd played it. But I didn't, you know, as soon as I could, I, I ditched him because... 
you know, he wasn't Mario or, you know, he wasn't Mario Bowser, the princess, you know, he wasn't a character who, who I was used to and, and liked. You know, maybe this would be a good time to talk about that when you talk about augmenting his HP. Maybe you should talk a little bit about the level up system. So after you level up, you know, every character kind of has a, a stat progression that they're built in to follow. So, you know, Bowser's going to be really high in strength and HP and the princess is really high in, you know, magic damage. Um, you know, Mal is high in magic defense, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. But you have an option to increase either their um, attack power um, or their, I guess their physical stats, their magical stats, or their HP every time uh, you level up. And you can use this to, you know, either uh, capitalize on someone's strength or shore up a weakness. Um, what Cole was referring to with, with Geno was kind of pumping up his HP because it's not great. Right. And it's a nice way to give you a little bit of agency in how your party develops um, without throwing you into full on Dungeons and Dragons character sheet hot mess kind of territory right and but one thing one complaint i have about it is that uh the amount of control it gives you is a little bit illusionary it seems um you'll get an option between uh, physical stats magical stats or hp and the amount that they you know you can choose any of them but but they start kind of stacking them so say on like level 18 your characters can have a plus three in attack or a plus one in every other stat so if you want the maximum total stats you'll choose the one that's most advantageous um, you can kind of work in spite of this if you want, but then you end up having, you know, choosing one extra damage point versus, you know, three or four or five uh, magic attack points. And I feel like you're going to end up with a weaker party. Then I don't know how much it ultimately matters because the game isn't that difficult with the exception of a couple spikes. But it was this was definitely a feature that I thought was really neat when I first saw it and kind of became disillusioned with as I played. So after after you know after you get uh, Geno and you have a full complement to your party, uh, you know for the first time in the game, uh, you you come upon something that I think is kind of a fun battle. I don't know how you felt about it, Gary, but you fight uh, Bowyer uh, in the middle of this uh, mysterious forest, and he has the ability to lock out entire buttons on your controller. Yeah, I, I thought this was really kind of fun and meta in a psychomantis kind of way proto you know he he literally you know it shows the buttons on your controller and he can block one of those it's kind of meta and neat so it'll take away your abilities to use items it'll take away your ability to use magic attacks and it'll take away your ability to just attack if this battle would have come you know even one dungeon sooner it would have been terrible because you don't have a well-rounded party but because all of your different party members have their own kind of strengths and they're pretty diverse you can you know, get around it. And it's a nice little uh, way to kind of introduce you to playing two different characters' uh, strengths. So after after you uh, beat Bowyer, you end up in the, the Mole Mountains. Um, you know, there's a community of moles for some reason. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, this, this kind of culminates in a, a, a mine cart. Well, I guess it doesn't really culminate. It's a long chapter. A but I, chapter. this does have a, it has a big chapter, has a coal mine, mine cart, uh, section um oh wait i'm skipping ahead no that's fine that's fine uh that, that that's really one of the big remarkable things about about that section which i thought was kind of you know maybe a bit of a meh, meh dungeon the fight with punchinello uh is is pretty funny because uh it's another one of the crazy off the wall villains but he is very aware of the fact that nobody knows who the hell he is and he's one of several enemies who seeks to make his reputation by taking Mario out of the game. Right, which is which is clever. But you know, it, it does. I remember feeling actually going through the the tunnels of this of this, you know, being pretty boring. I mean, mines are are kind of the sewers of the mountains <laughs> as far as video game levels go. 
you know, there's not that much difference. And there, there are a lot of, a lot of levels like this, you know, there's a minecart mini game, which not, not fun. Uh, some bad mode seven Ooh, motion sickness, but this chapter actually features two big dungeons. So you explore the mines and then you also explore, uh, there's a character named booster, uh, who's hard to explain. Like he, <laughs> um, he's a, he's a goofy looking, looking little dude. And you also kind of explore his mansion, and this is when you team up with Bowser. Uh, we, we had differing opinions about this. First, let me say about Booster, the most accurate description I could think of for his personality. From the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he's like if Pee-wee and Francis uh, had offspring. He is this kind of like wacky, semi-like... Uh, I, I, I hesitate to say autistic, but completely disconnected from reality <laughs> um, and completely childish. And he has this big tower that's full of uh, toys and mechanical trains, toy trains and uh, and uh, puzzles and things like that. Also, the best music in the game, in my opinion. Yeah, su- super good music. Um, check that out. I mean, you could cut some in right here. Hey. <laughs> Actually, I found Booster fine. Like I, I didn't like his town, or not his town. Uh, I didn't like his mansion very much um, because there was there was a lot of kind of secret c- content that to get to you need to utilize the game's platforming mechanics, and platforming doesn't really work in an isometric perspective, and it doesn't work very well in this game. I don't think. Um, I felt like they're really touchy. Like I would, there's one specific treasure chest you have to get to where you, you find a teeter totter with a weight on one end. And you have to jump from a, a tall height to, to land on the teeter-totter and uh, kind of trigger it and get propelled to an even greater height. And it took me so many tries because I, I kept just falling off or I couldn't line up my jump properly because of the weird perspective. And I just got very frustrated. You know, and again, you know, I wonder if there's some kind of reason why they put the best music in the game in the most frustrating areas. You know, because the, the forest has really good music too. It's balm for your soul. Keeps it going. <laughs> just, you know. You're going to be here for a while. This is no defense of the platforming in the game, honestly, but I got used to it. There are definitely times where the game overstretches itself. It it forgets how bad its platforming is, and it tries to make you do some pretty sketchy stuff. But as regards general, I think it's I think it's okay. It's it's when you get to these points where the where, where they intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, play with the perspective to to mess with you that and then they kind of take away the whole guesswork and kind of spatial navigation aspect of it and then just really kind of reduce it to frustration it might be me too i've, I've always had a hard time with uh, isometric platforming i remember playing um land stalker i think it's an old genesis game mm-hmm. and uh that that has isometric platforming and i just it's just difficult for me to know, you know, to feel as comfortable with where things are in relation to each other. Yeah, it was definitely this weird transitional evolutionary step uh, between 2D and where we ultimately ended up with uh, at 3D, which, uh, you know, even now I would argue that uh, 3D platforming is nowhere near as satisfying as uh, as, as the 2D uh, counterparts that we had way back in the day. I would, I would 100% agree. But you're going after Booster because he has kidnapped the princess. So Bowser further emasculated the 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 apple of his <laughs> eye, the object of his, of his affections, has been taken along with his domicile and his entire criminal infrastructure, and uh, he just can't take it anymore. And uh, Booster wants to marry 
princess. And he's got that this weird childlike idea of marriage. That's really funny. You know, it, it, <laughs> he just you know he knows what a marriage is. He thinks of it as a big party and and everything. Um, you know, he's kind of got the mind of a child. He's kind of a master <laughs> master blaster <laughs> character or blaster character. You know, and so you go to go to stop the the wedding. You know, ultimately do so, and you don't actually. You know, Booster is okay with that, but you had to fight his wedding cake uh, oh. for, for some, some Mario RPG reason. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible fight. It's, it's tough. It's the, the shitty damn spider in this one, in this game. <laughs> it's a two stage fight and most of its attacks target the entire party and deal a lot of damage. And uh, they also inflict status uh, ailments, including fear, which reduces your ability to, uh, to both, deal with and deal damage so uh, this is one of those kind of difficulty walls i would say i knew going into it this time um so i prepared myself and i spent a little bit of time in booster's tower leveling up and i made sure i was stocked up on the necessary ingredients but goddamn when i was a kid this i i, I took this game back to kmart in anger so many times <laughs> because of this goddamn cake yeah he's, he's hard he's also ugly like i don't really know what's going on with the cake you know, it, it's hard to see once it kind of bursts and kind of opens up and becomes a, a creature. Like, it's hard to tell like, where its heads are, where its head is, where its eyes are. You know, just kind of like pink and, and, and blue. I mean, I'm colorblind, but I assume pink and blue uh, just kind of smear on the screen. Um, I This is the first time I died in the game, too, which was frustrating. You know, not that I – there are plentiful save points. It's not that bad, but I've been, become conditioned to not die in games and not expect it. <laughs> Um, and so it was definitely a little frustrating for me. Game over. What the hell does that mean? If you have the patience to prevail over the cake, I think Bunt is its name. Um, then you move on to the world of Seaside, which begins with a visit to the Star Hill, uh, which I think is part of Star Road. It's never made entirely clear. I think this is where wishes go before they go to Star Road. The cosmology of this uh, whole universe <laughs> is not its not laid out. I need some kind of Dungeon Master's Guide with, uh, with some diagrams here to really grasp the mechanics of it. Yeah, or, or like a Bible, because it, <laughs> it's, it's definitely kind of like a weird heaven thing this is where your prayer i mean there's it you know it's best not to think about it too much gary i don't think heaven's full of monsters no well these are pretty gentle monsters though oh, this okay. is actually this level is kind of a, a weird little uh gimme relaxation dungeon i really like it um there's not very much conflict it's easy to avoid the monsters if you'd like to and you find um wishes that have been kind of waylaid maybe on their way to the star road and uh they're kind of you know sweet and some of them belong to people in your party and it's just kind of cute to see, you know, what they, uh, what their dreams and hopes are. Um, I really like this chapter. It's really, or this this uh, segment. It's really short, but it's just kind of a nice little breather and breaks it up. Yeah, and and it takes place between two of the most difficult parts of the game. You know, the the booster and the and the cake fight against the cake boss and um and the the, the sunken <laughs> and the sunken ship, uh, uh, which is one of the longer and more involved dungeons that you'll find. So, so it's a, it's a nice, easy star. It's a good little bit of story exposition. When I say it's a gimme dungeon, I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, as far as pacing goes, you need that sometimes. But uh, it's just it's just uh, a, a strange little diversion, almost. I would say so the the bulk of this chapter is taken up exploring a, a sunken ship, and uh, there's a they tell you there's a riddle at the end. You have to, to guess a word, and to get the clues, you go through these various puzzle rooms. 
um, that are, you know, some of which are, are pretty good, some of which are less strong, um, but it's pretty neat. Like, it's kind of a cool little diversion. Um, my least favorite one in this, there's a, a section where you walk into a, I don't know, it's not a building, like a series of blocks, and you can't see your character. The 3D maze. Yeah, and it, <laughs> and there's there's no doubt as to what that, that's what it's called, because at the bottom of your screen, in block letters, it says, this is a 3D maze <laughs> the entire time you're in it. So if you like pressing in directions and tapping jump to see if your the screen moves a little bit, to see if you, you've moved, then this is the maze for you. But uh, I did not like it and ended up not completing it, solving the puzzle without. And and you can brute force the puzzle, too, because it gives you, you know, there are six letters and, you know, there, there are only a certain number of letters you can put into each position. And all the clues give you a kind of, you know, good... Uh, grasp of what the answer ultimately is. Um, I like puzzles in games. I like this kind of uh, thing. I've been known to enjoy the Myst games. Um, so, so anytime yeah, I do kinda... know that about you, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this this is this is neat. And then the bosses that kind of cap this off, they're good too. Like the calamari fight where where you're being dragged along the the, the hull of the ship by this big squid. Yeah, I, I like the the boss fights at the end of this chapter. I feel like most of the boss fights in this game are pretty are pretty good, um, you know, are pretty fun. Some of them are, are tough. Some of them I felt like were kind of like damage sponges, but um, they're varied, you know, which is nice. There are a lot of different ones. What's what's cool when you fight the the, the boss of this ship, the the, the head of these pirate um, gangsters, I guess sharks, shark pirates. There we go. Yeah, gang, um, yeah gangster sharks. Yeah, gangster sharks. Um, yeah. Sewer sharks. Um, they. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Jonathan Jones is the is the uh, is the leader, and he's a he's a, he turns out to be a decent guy. You know, he fights you one on one in a duel like a real man, and then uh, and then he saves your bacon later. You know, no big deal. He's like, I would have liked it if you could have recruited him. I know, right? Kick Mallow out yeah. of there. Come on. <laughs> I know. Here's this cloud. I, I, <laughs> here, here's here's our party member uh, who can't live more than a day, and uh, and, and you know. Here's a we you fly through him with an airplane and nothing happens and uh, this is this is a this is a puff of fog and then we're gonna trade it in for this badass uh, organized crime shark yeah but uh, this is followed up by what I think was the toughest fight in the game which is uh, excuse me if I get the pronunciation wrong nobody there's no consistent source Yuridovic that sound that sounds right to me um, yeah I don't. I'm, I don't have a lot of strong memories with this fight. I, I had a harder time with the unboss okay. than with this. What, what specifically made this frustrating, Cole? What made this frustrating for me was that he uh, would split in two. Um, that and physical damage didn't really work on him, but magic damage was less effective. And he did the, the, the cake boss thing where he would hit you with area effect uh, spells. That would you know hit you know, hit you with fear and things like that. So if he got a good couple of a uh, good couple of hits on you, that that would be the end of it. And you know your characterization of some of the bosses as damage sponges. Good God, does it apply here? Remind me, is this before or after you get the princess? This is after you get the princess. You know the only reason why I probably don't have foul memories of this fight is because she has a, a heal all effect that heals your your party for a good amount of hp and then also erases any status effects but without that that would be it'd be ridiculous i forget if i had the princess in my party at this point because she is really fragile 
um, and I may have wanted to focus on de on uh, damage for this one. That would definitely would have been advantageous, except for when he splits into into twins, he gets twice as many attacks. So it's real difficult depending on where she falls in the initiative then you might end up being kind of boned and then you end up you know kind of spending all your all of your turns trying to restore your party back to uh back to fighting shape which is yeah uh, trouble yeah, yeah so so this kind of kind of moves us into the uh, world five which is called uh land's end which is a weird chapter it doesn't have a solid kind of theme to it it's just a couple of big outdoor dungeons i i, I like the idea of like this is this is the end this is where this is as far as you can go what's going to happen but uh it was it was like we alluded to before it's a lot of wandering around and fighting without any of those kind of quirky side diversions that made the first batch really kind of uh bearable the nice part is that it has monster town which i think is one of the 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 neater experiences because you get to see bowser's softer side yeah you run into a lot of people who um you know when smithy took over they didn't get uh hypnotized by smithy um you know and ran off to kind of uh start lives in this little town they kind of tell you these touching little stories about uh being shopkeeps there's a goomba who has three little goomba babies who can only sell you the weakest healing item, but they want to be little merchants too. Like it's, it's really adorable. And, and Bowser, you know, lets them uh, continue on with their new lives. Uh, shockingly benevolent uh, Bowser is. Yeah. But, the, but there's lots of little character and story bits, uh, a nice little gag about a star, I guess you show up asking if there's a star here in this town. And an old woman says, yeah, upstairs. It's just one of the starfish enemies. Yeah, just a starfish. He does a little dance for you. It's cute, but frustrating because this this chapter has like no direction, you know. And then out of nowhere, you run into a troop of of flying Koopas who will fly you over the wall at the uh, cliff face you run into earlier. And it's like, oh, well, okay. Um, this is also there's a optional boss that's kind of infamous in this game, and this is where you find him. Did you did you fight him, Cole? Have you fought Culex? I did not fight him this time around. I have beaten him in the past. Um, I probably have an active uh, save file on my SNES cartridge uh, where I have beaten him. But uh, of all the instances of kind of Square's aesthetic invading on the game, this is the one overt uh, example of it, up to the point where it actually plays the boss music from Final Fantasy IV while you fight him which is a neat little homage you know it's it's intentional though because this he's definitely i felt you know i watched it that it's, it's kind of a parody of uh square tropes you know you fight in this whirling ambient starscape. um he looks like a square design he has this overall dialogue um he has these little options that cast you know some spells that are kind of final fantasy-esque and the music i i really wish i had run into it but i i didn't do very much exploring in this game for one reason or another it's difficult to do even if you know because there are a lot of items that obviously they would give they, they give them to you for a reason but it's not apparent where you need to use them and i think that one of them for this side quest to fight culex um you can actually sell it by accident so you really have to know that you have to hold on to it this is kind of a weird thing too because when you run into this optional boss is not the time to fight him like he's really kind of legendarily tough so you'd want to come back later when you actually leave monster town you end up in nimbus land uh, which is the kingdom of the clouds. Gee, I wonder who belongs there. 
and not at my party <laughs> being a crybaby. If only you could explain that to him. <laughs> and and this is where uh, the, the, the game really does kind of start to drag. There are some good set pieces here, like the like the palace, um, which we'll talk about here, um, and then fighting another kind of eccentric uh, person with aspirations to power, Valentia. Uh, but uh, in general, this is kind of the part where the game started wearing out its welcome for me. Yeah, this is pretty weak. Um, the the palace dungeon is a little lame. You know, you go through a volcano dungeon before you do so, or after. I can't remember the exact chronology <laughs> of it. But this, you go through this volcano, and it's it's dark, and it's hard to say you know see your way around, and it's just excruciating. <laughs> like yeah. I hated that dungeon so much. And, and and we're hitting all of the uh, if you're if you're keeping track, we've hit sewer, we've hit mine, we've hit. Uh, there wasn't a snow level, but here's the lava level. You know, what, what kind of the redeeming factor of this this level is the, the writing is still pretty funny. Um, you know, you sneak into the, the castle in front of this um, Valentia's uh, guard by kind of dressing up as a, a statue. You know, you get painted as a, as a golden statue and they call the statue a plumber's lament, which is cute. <laughs> you know, there's a also once you uh, beat the boss, you find that they've erected statues to your party in their, their foyer. Which is really cute. <laughs> but while, while you're trying to keep up the ruse as uh, a fake statue painted gold, uh, Valentia's little sidekick, Dodo, the uh, morbidly obese uh, cockatoo, I guess, comes and he starts, uh, he starts you know, trying to clean the statues by pecking at them. And he pecks at them in time with the music, which may or may not make this the earliest rhythm game. I'm not sure. You know, I saw that in your notes. Cool. And I think I don't think I was listening to I feel like maybe I was listening to a podcast during this part. I didn't realize he pecked in time with the rhythm. I just kind of tried to dodge him. Huh? Maybe I failed this part and, and didn't realize it. You can fail it. Well, do you die or does it just kind of continue on and you get into a fight? It just kind of continues on. You get a couple of you get a couple of extra chances. And it just if you fail, it results in a, just an, an, an extra fight with Dodo. I'm pretty sure that's what happened to me. I also want to underline the sentence you just said uh, a minute ago, which was uh, her sidekick dodo the obese cockatoo who attempts to polish statues by pecking them in time with music um <laughs> it's just kind of like a nice uh succinct way of showing how fucking surreal video games are <laughs> in this game in particular God, like when, the, the calm matter of fact way you said that when the aliens obese cockatoo who, yeah when the aliens find the transcript of this in the library of congress they're not going to know what to make of it <laughs> by this i mean this show Get on it, Library of Congress. Exactly. But, but you know, you kind of go on and you end up fighting Valentia, who is notable because every time you hit her, her rockin' cans just go bouncity, bouncity, bouncity. By, by yeah, cans, kinda, I mean her breasts. She looks a little bit like um, the Chiquita Banana um, girl, like Charo or something. She's kind of got <laughs> yeah. like, she's like a Mario Charo. With Chari Chario. <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with, with a dead parrot for hair. Yeah. <laughs> But during your fight with her, uh, Dodo comes uh, to her rescue and whisks the person who is in the middle character slot away. Uh, that was where I kept Peach. Um, and fun fact, Peach isn't really good at one-on-one -on -one combat. And, and yeah, do you have to remind me, um, do you have to fight without Peach as well? Or do you just have to do the one-on-one -on -one fight first? You have to do the one-on-one -on -one fight first, and then you would have to 
do a couple of rounds against Valentia on your own before the extra person comes back. What happened was I ended up having to die, reload, and then swap Bowser into that spot because he is better at doing one-on-one combat. Um, and you can't actually put Mario into that middle slot because he always has to be at the far end. Yeah, there's no real warning about that. That's kind of a dumb design thing. But after you defeat Valentia, you know, she's kicked out because she has been, she has kept the Nimbus Royals hostage. Um, the Nimbus Royals being Mallow's parents. Guess what? Mallow's a prince. Wah, wah, wah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you are given access to the uh, Nimbus family sky bus thing, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> kind of a, a perplexing magic uh, gets you to the next place. Magic thing. cloud. You car. take a sky bus. Yeah. You know him. Him being a, a prince of the the clouds kind of ruins the pun of his name because I didn't think about this until now. But he grew up in a swamp, so he was a marshmallow. Yep. <laughs> up until up until that part. Now he's just a sky mallow. That's not a thing yet. Like, now, <laughs> now somebody hasn't hasn't played with a marshmallow gun enough. Marshmallow <laughs> cannon. Yeah, he um, should have been a peep. Is what he should have been. That would, man, yeah. if he had been a peep. Um, as long as it wasn't a promotional tie-in, like this wasn't a, a peep, you know, peep RPG that you got from a box of PPOs or something like that. Like the Cool Spot game, yeah, yeah. which was actually pretty good. Um, but uh, the 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 the, fi- the final star piece fell into uh, a volcano, the aforementioned awful dungeon, uh, lava land area, which uh, perplexingly is guarded by the Power Rangers. Yeah, and, and a reference that's sure to. To just get better every year. Um, you know, there's going to be people playing this game who don't even know what a Power Ranger is. It's really strange. It's a weird, super dated element. But an okay fight. Like, they've got good music. Oh, yeah. The the, the music where you're chasing up, chasing them up, like, to the caldera of the uh, volcano. That's really good. I might cut that in here, too. So much good music in this game. God. Um, mm. And then the final fight with them. It's cool because each of them has their own different kind of strength and attack strategy. And you can prioritize them. So, you know, you always go after the Pink Ranger first because she heals. Uh, stuff like that. So that's a that's a good fight. It's a good way to cap off the a good way to cap off the chapter, which up till then was kind of monotonous. <laughs> in the, the final dungeon after uh, defeating the power rangers you end up in smith's factory which is kind of a you know a, for a short time it's a it's a regular dungeon it's kind of awesome because you uh you go through bowser's castle to get there I, I i love it when a game makes you go back to the first dungeon but it's you know completely different you know um and it has uh tougher enemies it's nice because there's a meta element where some of the enemies run away from bowser if you have bowser in your party um they're scared of him Unfortunately, you have to watch each one run away one at a time and watch the text scroll to tell you. So it takes takes a long time for them to run away. But um, that was a neat, neat touch. Um, there are kind of uh, challenge rooms in the castle. You get to this point where there are eight rooms. You have to defeat four of them. Or is it six? There are six rooms. Yeah, six, and four, then you must pass four. four of them. Yeah, and two of them are uh, battle rooms, which is just a seemingly never-ending string of, of fights that uh, kind of end with a mid-boss, like kind of a tough monster, but just goes on for a long time. Two of them are puzzle rooms, which are pretty good. Like there's one that's a kind of like a quiz master. Um, there's you know, a couple of different kinds of puzzle that are pretty fun. And then the last two are action rooms, which really uh, test the uh, platforming elements of this game to the breaking point 
and find them wanting. Just so bad. And it's like, it's nice. It's almost like they were aware of it because they give you a certain number of tries. And then after that, you're kicked back to the beginning so you can try another another room. Um, the nice part about the action levels, I don't know if you got this one. One of them is a uh, is an homage to Donkey Kong. Like it's a series of tiered platforms. Yeah, yeah, I did get that one. That's cool. And at the end of each of these, you know, uh, uh, challenge series, you got um, kind of one of your characters' ultimate weapons, or, or a couple of them. Uh, it depends. Some of the ultimate weapons are hidden and completely break the game. But never mind. Yeah, it was it was frustrating to me because you had no way to tell which character's ultimate weapon was at the end, and you had no way to go back after you've done four of the room. So I went through and got the ultimate weapon for both Geno and Mallow but didn't use them in my party. So, uh, you know, there's just no no reason and no way to go back unless I wanted to reload a game, which I did not. I refuse to reload a game, good sir. You, yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that with a lot of confidence. Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. But the cool I'm part. Sure about this is I've been at anything in my life. <laughs> Am I the kind of man who will reload a game? No. <laughs> what is it? Fie on you. Uh, but but uh, the cool part is that this whole uh, Bowser's Castle uh, keep fight leads up to a fight with Exor who you find out is the sword that uh, kind of pierced Bowser's castle and up to this point has been the big monumental face of Smithy's organization staring you down from the world map. Yep, so it's pretty satisfying to fight him. It's a pretty good fight. You know, not not too difficult, but but well-balanced. And the cool thing is after you you beat him, he is a, a portal into an, you know, into the Smithy's dimension. He's actually the the bridge between the two. So you get sucked into Smithy's dimension. Which there was really no allusion to the fact that that is what was happening and that's how it was working. And that's where I, I think the consistently whimsical tone that we mentioned before and praised before kind of breaks down just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 pretty strange. You're in a, in a you know, a gunmetal gray uh, weapons factory. Uh, for most of this, there's no, you know, there's no background. There's no hint that there is a, a dimension as such. Um, you know, you kind of fight through this and there's some little funny bits of writing in it. But you ultimately end up fighting Smithy, who, you know, up until this point, you'd never seen him. He doesn't have any personality. It's a real square thing to, you know, it's a real Final Fantasy IX type of move where you, <laughs> you just bring in a boss that you have no connection to or no background with at the very end. And then just completely go off the rails with it. Because your initial fight with Smithy, he's he's uh, he's demonic Santa Claus who happens to have access to a, to a forge. And then after you beat his first round and then you go on to stage two of the boss fight, you are tangling with a gigantic robot tank um, in what appears to be the bowels of hell. Yeah, you, <laughs> you get sucked into, into hell. And you fight this weird, um, fat, like kind of wind-up doll-looking character who bangs on his own head to change it into different shapes. It's it's ridiculous. It's real weird. You target his body and his head separately. Um, you know, they're like two different monsters. It's really strange. It's a weird boss fight, and pretty tough. Like it, you know, if you don't destroy his legs, he gets multiple turns. So. Um, you know, I found this out the hard way. I had, uh, you know, not saved after the first uh, boss fight leading up to this. Ooh. And uh, he got three turns in a row and he has, you know, wide area effect attacks like all bosses and, uh, you know, killed killed Peach and then sent me up into that spiral you were talking about where you're constantly trying to get your party back up. 
and end up running out of items and, and being unable to. What I will say is that this, like most final boss battles in RPGs, is substantially easier if you can let go of the fact that the game has been training you to hoard your items throughout the entire game. You know, at, at this point, I had like, you know, five rock candies, which are, you know, big area effect, massive damage things. And I had a bunch of Kiro sodas, which were basically like mega elixirs. So, you know, kind of interspersing those around with different, you know, kind of buffs that made it easier for me. Um, I don't know how much of that was me kind of metagaming it and realizing that the final boss was as hard as he was. Yeah, I had a, a similar experience. I didn't have quite as many items because, as I said, I wasn't very exploratory with this game. But um, ultimately, I was able to to prevail. And uh, yeah, you just kind of you defeat Smithy, you close the the portal, and uh, you get a kind of a, a link to the past style ending where it checks in on everybody who's helped you along the way um, to nice music. Bluto Blutarski, whereabouts unknown. <laughs> you know it's the end of it it's the end of animal house shows you where shows you where everybody is at valentia is uh is a booster's wife a match made in heaven or the heavens depending on where they ended up getting hitched who knows um <laughs> yeah it's just neat it's a, it's a nice little way for for it to wrap it up because you really do meet a nice big color, colorful cast of characters uh throughout the entire game mm-hmm. so after fighting yeah. in the bowels of hell it's a nice it's a nice tonal uh palate cleanser i guess What are some uh, kind of generality, uh, you know, either frustrations or things you appreciated about the game? I really liked that Mario was the silent protagonist. I know that that is Square being self-referential, um, but it works because of the absurdity of his pantomime. Because there are points where he has to relate complex series of events, and in doing so, he defies physics. He transforms into different characters, and he makes a bunch of different sound effects. It's a neat little kind of narrative touch. It's very strange. Like it's 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 whimsical and it it's it's nice, but it it felt like to me a little bit like it came out of nowhere. Like I, you know, the first time he turned into another creature, I was like, uh. You know, I, I didn't really not exactly understand it, but yeah, it's, it's a nice touch. And it makes sense that he's silent. I mean, if he had tons of backstory and was, <laughs> you know, moaning all the time about wanting to save the princess and everything, that would be would be wrong. I had a three tours and I came back to Mushroom Kingdom. I didn't get a parade, you know. Um, <laughs> 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 but, um, but, uh, I just was still spitting on him. But, uh, you know, kind of in relation to the action stuff, the, the timed hits, that, that that was good. And I had a lot of fun experimenting with different weapons and trying to figure out what the, uh, what the right time to hit would be. Something to keep in mind with this game, and maybe I would have, you know, I... I liked it, but I didn't love it. And maybe I would have liked it more if I had kept more in mind that this is really kind of, you know, Babby's first RPG in a lot of ways. Um, there aren't very many items, you know, there, uh, there's not very much, there's a very low level cap. So it makes it pretty easy to max out your characters. And they tried, they did some things with that, that didn't work as well. Like they tried to do, um, there's an inventory cap. You can only have so many items and that's not fun. That's really frustrating. And, uh, you know, maybe in the name of simplicity, they did that, but it was not more fun. Similarly, they had you share an MP pool, which which you took some issue with. Everyone uses the same same pool of MP. And what that did for me is it made me want to hoard that for healing spells. You know, it, I didn't have tons of uh, mass healing spells, so I didn't use a lot of uh, the, the character's abilities other than their basic attacks, you know, because otherwise I would have been carrying around, uh, you know, the equivalent of ethers 
constantly, you know, so I can so I can heal. That being the most efficient way to do it. It didn't affect me that negatively because I felt like there was a there's a weird lowered stakes to this game where you know they're very you know it takes a long time for you to get a massive you know an, uh, an area effect spell, and when you do, they're really expensive. You know, I, I ended the game with about. 72 to 80 i can't remember somewhere in there like with flower points which are mp i didn't have tons of them but doing a mass uh spell that affect the entire group would take 15 so you know it would take you know one fifth of my my magical power to do one spell and they weren't very powerful you know for me i didn't have geno in my party i didn't have mallow but when i would do one of bowser's area effects or mario's or peaches it would maybe do like 10 20 more damage than a regular attack so it's kind of not only was it difficult for me, I was disincentivized on two fronts of kind of having a greater variety of agency in the fights. What I will say about the uh, about the shared MP, like what you said about this being Babby's first uh, role playing game, that holds true. And if you were trying to micromanage individual party members, that would have directly conflicted with the item cap. I understand that this is two two uh, fundamental problems of the game, kind of you know propping each other up, house of cards style. But one in 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 some ways kind of justifies the other. The 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 balancing stuff with you know spells not doing any more damage than regular attacks that's a genuine problem. But I feel like that's somewhat offset by the fact that healing spells are cheap. Yeah, it's really easy to get your your health back, but that kind of leads to another problem where you know you're it's easy for you to stay alive but it's hard for you to kill things or kill things quickly. Like I never really got to a point in this game where I felt powerful. You know, it always took a lot. Every battle took longer than I, I wanted it to. You know, every enemy took, you know, two or three hits kind of throughout the entire game. They scale with you almost exactly. And uh, it was just very frustrating. And in other, you know, JRPGs or square RPGs kind of offset by those, you know, big damage spells. You know, you get to the point where you can afford to cast, you know, Fyra on everybody every time you run into them. In this game, I could never really do that. You know, I didn't feel like I could. So, uh, you know, even though it was it was very simple and it was very easy to stay alive, um, you know, it just drew everything out. Because the the, the leveling curve is so gentle, um, one, one of the things that I had to get over going back to it is um, I had to not be afraid to skip battles. I ran a lot just when I was like, you know what, screw this. I don't. I don't need to do. I don't need to uh, to sit here and fight these people unless there was some kind of story reason where it was forced into a scripted uh, kind of thing. But again, that's that's no excuse for, for for the way that that stuff kind of you know panned out. Yeah, I, I definitely got that way at the end. I mean, near the end, I was avoiding everything I could. Yeah, a lot of the hidden stuff is way too hidden. I felt like, um, and you alluded to that. You know, you didn't do a lot of uh, exploration, uh, but. It, even if you're kind of checking every nook and cranny, like getting the final, like the big ultimate uh, gear for Mario and then uh, for, for, for Princess as well involves combining two items that you wouldn't really expect to combine. There's kind of found one-off areas. Getting one involves walking off of the edge of Nimbus Town onto an invisible pathway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was almost no way to get that without feeling like you had to resort to a strategy guide, which I did. I, I would fan the pages right now if it wasn't across the room. But in getting those items, it's almost good that they're hidden away because if you put the ultimate armor on Peach and give her her ultimate weapon, she becomes your paladin impregnable 
battle mage kind of person mm. who just is the win button and that might have accounted for my lack of frustration with the end boss and i wish i had found more of that stuff i found uh the seed which is one of those items but i did not find the fertilizer and i did not remember that there's a character seven towns back who has a, a pot of soil in his his apartment that uh you know that you could you could do that with so there's just kind of a weird level of it being easy and holding your hand a lot and then being really obtuse at the same time. Which is weird because it's almost like it was designed to play through and gloss over the first time, uh, perhaps when you were really young like I was, um, and then to go back and uh, kind of hit the high points when you're more RPG savvy. Maybe I'm just projecting, though. That's a really interesting idea. Like, I've never seen a game that was designed to play differently at two different periods in your life. That's like a really interesting idea that somebody should do something with. But I don't know. I don't think that's intentional here. Um, you know, I, one of the, one of my biggest kind of frustrations, we're kind of blending the, the frustrations and uh, positive effects of the game, is that I wish it, it hadn't introduced all these non-Mario elements. You know, I felt like this was a really cool opportunity to take a, a, a character that everyone knows and everyone's familiar with the tropes of, of which and, and kind of spin those by introducing another genre. In exactly the same the way that Paper Mario does, like I feel like Paper Mario is the platonic ideal of this game because <laughs> it's all you know characters you love, uh, you know set set pieces you love, and kind of just turning them on their side. Whereas this game is constantly introducing new characters, and while several of them are kind of colorful and interesting, um, you know I didn't have that connection with them. You know, and they're they're gone. They're there and gone in a flash. You know, it just didn't feel very strong to me. Paper Mario definitely definitely leverages that shorthand that was established by the by the series. You know, before just kind of like you know what this is. You know that this is a magic Koopa, and here's how it's going to behave. Which isn't to say that it's you know stayed or you know kind of unadventurous. You know, kind of kind of the opposite because they were taking it and applying it to new mechanics. But that that kind of uh, shorthand of being familiar with those tropes, it makes it so much easier to get invested right yeah exactly and you you had a um like a point of reference to be able to know how to to act and how to plan you know in this game or in paper mario you know you get a character who is a, a boo and uh you know her powers revolve around stealth being able to turn invisible <laughs> and uh fear in mario rpg you get a character who is a cloud that thinks he's a frog and is actually a prince so you you know i defy you to know what that could possibly mean in gameplay mechanics <laughs> without just kind of trial and error the, the, the game kind of weirdly under communicates some things like that and it's uh, you know, I found that really frustrating and, and not that fun. I, I will take this moment to caution you about the Mario and Luigi series um, just a little bit because it does kind of venture into the weird, you know, this is our proprietary universe uh, kind of aspect uh, just a little bit. Uh, probably not to the degree. It's, it's more sustained throughout the entire game than it is in uh, Super Mario RPG, which is kind of a sampler platter of uh, hallucinations. Uh, but uh, but I, I will I will say that uh, Mario and Luigi hues uh, closer to this than uh, than it does to Paper Mario. You know I have like I've just dipped my toe in this whole whole world. You know with uh, I played Paper Mario on Nintendo sixty four and this and those are the only RPG games I've played. Um, so I don't have a lot of, uh, pre-experience with this game. This kind of somehow just flew under my radar and I, I don't know how I was a, you know, big square fanboy, uh, loved 16 bit RPGs, but did not end up playing this one. Um, but I do know you have some, some history with 
for this game. Why, yes, I do, Gary. Um, I, this was actually my first RPG. Mm-hmm. Uh, way back when I was a when I was a young lad, um, I remember uh, being about six or so, maybe like nineteen ninety three ish, and reading a feature um, on this game in an issue of uh, GamePro that I happened uh, to come across, um, and I was just amazed uh, by the graphics and uh, got excited about it. Um, it looked, you know, kind of big and weird and new, which it is. Um, and I promptly asked my mom, uh, my <laughs> Well, meaning mom. Hey, mom, what's an RPG? <laughs> Obviously, she didn't know. It's a rocket propel grenade. I saw him in Nam. <laughs> well, well, son, um, you know, over in Somalia, they just shot down a Black Hawk with one of those. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. See, it was the early 90s, so we get it. Um, <laughs> topical. Um, so she didn't know. Uh, much later, um, I saw it at the Kmart where I rented uh, games from, and uh, uh, I knew it must be mine. Uh, we probably uh, rented it uh, enough to have paid for a copy um, on its own outright, but the economics of that don't really work out. It's easier to ask for $4 every week than it is to ask for you know right. $80 all at once. Uh, but eventually, I think about like a year or two later, um, I beat it a weekend at a time. You know, it was my first RPG. Um, it preceded Final Fantasy uh, 2-4, uh, by a couple of months, uh, but you, you know you're, you're right when you say it's baby's first RPG. It, it, it really is. It's, it's it succeeds at that. You know, it taught me how to uh, you know approach kind of slower, more stat and story driven games, and it wasn't too frustrating. It didn't really scare me away. You know, with the numbers or by alienating me with some kind of melodramatic and medieval story. You know, there was plenty of that in Final Fantasy. You know, but I was ready for it um, right. when I did encounter it. It was always fun taking this out for my friends, you know, from down the street, like, Oh, we want to play Mario. Let me show you Mario RPG. No, we don't really want to mm-hmm. play that. We want to play a game where you don't just press a button and watch numbers fly. So it, you're lame. <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things about this being uh baby's first RPG, and as much as I had a mixed experience with it, it is definitely the best baby's first RPG because uh, the only real uh, competition there is uh, final fantasy mystic quest and uh, quest 64 or the other two, you know, kind of beginner RPGs. And uh, those are both terrible games. <laughs> this is still a very good game. I just, you know, maybe because, you know, my first RPGs were on the Nintendo. So it was unforgiving things like Dragon Warrior, you know, and uh, Final Fantasy 1. So maybe, you know, since I was kind of hardened to that kind of more difficult experience, maybe that's part of why, you know, it did, I didn't have that aspect. And because I, you know, I played countless RPGs by the time I got around to this. It's comforting to go back to it, honestly, because it's, you know, if I can get philosophical here, um, I was a big RPG kid, um, and my uh, appreciation for RPGs immediately led into, like, I really like reading, and I really like books, and all of that, and, you know, in some small way, Super Mario RPG probably contributed in some small way towards me being the person that I am. That's speaking in very broad and in very, uh, kind of, I would say, dramatic strokes, but uh, you know, I can't I can't deny the fact that it introduced me to a genre that I that I still appreciate to this day. So I'm probably willing to give it a little bit more leeway because of my uh, my good associations with it. Yeah, there's probably some truth to it, even if it is a little bit dramatic. Yeah. So yeah. So I, uh, do you have any kind of final thoughts on Super Mario RPG? I would say give it a chance. I mean, you know, it's no longer scarce. It's no longer um, expensive. You know, you can get it on your Wii, you know, for, for, for eight bucks, eight smackaroos. 
Um, it's no longer a collector's item. The barrier to entry is really low, and I think it's a nice, um, you know, little kind of you know Reese's moment. It's a you know you got your square into my into my Mario, and uh, you got your <laughs> Mario into my square, and uh, it's just this nice little oddity. That's a that's a, that's great a great way to go back and revisit you know a particular point in time. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm definitely glad that I that I played it. Um, I had a mild amount of fun fun with it. Um, my my personal recommendation would probably say would be to just skip right to Paper Mario. It's two dollars mm-hmm. extra. Um, if you don't have the the kind of history with it, um, you know I would skip it. But I don't regret playing it. I don't regret spending you know eight measly dollars on it or anything. It was definitely fun. And if I had come across it at the kind of age appropriate time, I probably would have a much higher opinion of it. <laughs> you've heard what we have to say um you know we want to hear about what you have to say um we just got a couple responses on uh, this game um you know that's going to happen from time to time we're not going to get everyone wanting to replay every old game we play but uh, we definitely heard from a couple people um eric hyde on facebook uh he has this to say i thought that super mario rpg is a great take on the rpg genre uh, most RPGs I've played are taken very seriously, uh, like Chrono Trigger, and I really liked the attempts at comedy and the way that the stories were whimsical during this game, sometimes even in a very cheesy way, but I thought that was very funny. Um, the characters were pretty cool. I really liked Geno. Um, I loved how you could actually be Bowser and that he wasn't the villain of the game. He was forced to join you in your quest. Uh, Smithy is a, was pretty tough. is a tough boss. But I never got too frustrated in the game, and... Uh, you know, even though it required some some grinding to get there, I didn't mind because I was having such fun uh, raising those levels. So, you know, it sounds like uh, with Eric, this definitely worked kind of the, the way is intended to to for him. He brings up the interesting point of this being, uh, you know, the first opportunity to kind of play as Bowser in the Mario mythos, um, other than I guess in uh, Mario Kart. Oh well, yeah, but that that you know that that doesn't count. Mario's got a weird relationship with his villains. Like some, sometimes, you know, he's, he's killing them. And sometimes it's like, you know, they just go hang out and play tennis, you know, or, or like he's, it, it's, it's really odd. And this was one of the first examples of that, that I can see of. So thanks Eric uh, for that comment. You know, it sounds like you touched on several of the things that we appreciated about the game. Um, had some kind of more pleasant experiences with some of the things that I found frustrating, but thank you very much for, for playing along. The princesses love them and the arch villains want to play light activity sports with them. You know, <laughs> the, the, that Mario on, on Mario's business card. <laughs> I take I take issue with his category with his uh, calling this attempts at humor. I smiled. You know, even now <laughs> it's it's funny. <laughs> attempts attempts succeeded, sir. Yeah, I think I think he just means that it was he appreciated that it was trying. Right. You know that that was a goal. This next one comes via Gmail from Jonathan Wolf. He says, "I've always been a sucker for lighthearted JRPGs." And at the time this came out, I worshipped Square and Nintendo, so this game was more or less tailor-made for my 13-year-old self. I think the humor in the battle system timing helped it nicely sidestep, needing to be compared to Final Fantasy VI or Chrono Trigger, or whichever other Square or Nintendo game you've recently played that was probably way better. Not to say the game was bad at all, but it had some extremely stiff competition just due to being a JRPG in the mid-90s. You can't deny the influence the timing stuff had on later games, though. 
Pressing a button to defend or make an attack stronger practically became an RPG mainstay after this. It was definitely something fun and different, and it was cool to see Square and Nintendo styles come together so nicely. I've gone back to the game several times in later years, and I always have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, think, thanks a lot, John. Again, uh, hitting on a lot of the points that, that we have, um, I would agree with you. Come on, pay attention. Stop reiterating what we say. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, come back from the, the future. I think that um, certain games are going to lend themselves um, more to a, a, a more unified opinion. And uh, certain games are going to have a little bit more room for dissension. You know, and, and maybe based on the kind of the simplicity of this game and when it came out in, in people's lives, it's, you know, a lot of people probably feel the same way about this. Um, just kind of looking around at things on the internet about this. I and I don't recommend this. I read a couple of reviews from uh, GameFAQs. Oh no! Which you know that's a that's a robust, uh, robust and, and intelligent community. That way, madness lies. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am being sarcastic, and uh, it's it's all you know just ten out of, ten out of ten, and reviews that just kind of are people remembering out loud. You know, it's it's a critical look that just them saying things they remember from the, the time, <laughs> and uh, you know I, I think that kind of speaks to the game. You're not going to get a, hu- a wide variety of uh, takes on this game. Would this be considered a cult classic or would it just be a roundabout classic? Um, you know what, what John brought up about the, the context that it came out in, um, I think would you know, make it a little bit closer to a cult classic because this, uh, you know, this was kind of the watermark for, for JRPGs in my opinion, you know, was this kind of mid nineties period, you know, anything that wasn't a final fantasy or a chrono trigger, you know, at the time is kind of on the wayside now, you know, did not have a lot of legs and, you know, is maybe not as fondly, fondly remembered. So, I mean, I, I think you could, you could call it a cult classic. So thank you so much, everybody, for responding to that. Um, we're going to take a moment and deliberate and we're going to decide who will win the million hours of fun that pennies. the next game will bring yeah, you. There you go. It's not even going to be millions of pennies, <laughs> the millions of fractions of pennies. So Cole and I have thought about it, and uh, we're going to give it to John Wolf uh, for his comment, which uh, kind of covered all the bases and was pretty insightful and, and nuanced. And uh, that prize, as we mentioned before, is a copy of Vampire the Masquerade, uh, colon Bloodlines, a game with two sets of colons in it. And uh, yeah, so uh, John will be in touch about that. If uh, if you are not set up currently to do PC gaming, um, we'll figure out another another prize. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for, for participating and thanks to anybody, um, who, who has, or, or will, that's something we really want to, want to encourage kind of moving forward as well. Um, we'd love it if you played along and we want to hear what you think. We, we like to think of this as kind of a, a games club, you know, we, we, we want to take your suggestions of stuff we should, you know, be playing and we want to hear your thoughts on it because, uh, these things as we constantly underline are worth remembering. And, uh, this next, the next game we are doing the, uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines was a, a listener suggestion, um, I believe, from Derek Hayes, um, who who won the prize in the missed episode. Uh, super fan Derek Hayes, yeah. and uh, so yeah, we took his his suggestion. We're playing through through Bloodlines, and the one after that is going to be another listener suggestion, uh, which will be Zombies Ate My Neighbors, uh, which is a classic LucasArts action arcade uh, B movie horror spoof game. Uh, which was released back for the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. It's, a, it's available on the Virtual Console for for 800 points. Um, I'm really psyched about this because this game has a, a password system that allows you to restart, um, I think, every four levels 
but you lose all of your items. So it's effectively not a password. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it's really hard to not beat this game in one sitting, but with modern technology, I will use the Wii to, uh, to stop playing when I want to and pick it right back up and we'll probably finally complete it. Like God intended. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that we should say now that whatever the next game we have doing, um, let's make it not horror themed. Exactly. We, we are, we are def- we're definitely leaning towards that. And this isn't really a serious horror game, but um, I don't know if it says something about us or what it says about video games, but we're doing a lot of uh, kind of horror stuff. Agreed. So, which is fine. Like, I love that stuff, but we will do something, um, you know, maybe not quite as lighthearted as Mario RPG, but more lighthearted than uh, Vampire Bloodline, certainly. If you would like to play along with us for either Vampire the Masquerade or with Zombies at My Neighbors or any of the number of games that we're playing, you can get in contact with us uh, many ways and offer your thoughts. We are at facebook.com slash watch out for fireballs. We look at that every uh, every day and we respond to what you say. It's a nice little place for us all to kind of gather in the clubhouse and talk. You can also drop us an email at watch out for fireballs at duckfeed.tv. I see those and any relevant ones I'll pass along to Gary. And then if you want to be a part of the audio experience, you can call mm-hmm. us using your phone, uh, your telephone. It's a, it's a new invention um, at 419-834-WOFF, standing for Watch Out for Fireballs. And uh, you can leave us your comments there and we will, uh, using the power of audio magic, insert your voice in there. And everybody will hear it, so don't freak out. Yeah, it's, it's like you're in the room with us. And if, if you contact us by, uh, it's good that you specify telephone, because if you use megaphone, we're not going to get it. We are at opposite ends of the country, no matter which way you face, if one of us will not hear it. So um, what else is there, Gary? And, and just as a reminder, if you do decide to take us up on that and play, um, you will win free games. So if you play Bloodlines, you'll win a copy of Zombies Ate My Neighbors. If you win Zombies Ate My Neighbors, you will win a copy of whatever game we decide to do in that next episode. Um, but we're all about giving back. Because uh, you, we, we know that you have several options when it comes to podcasts, and uh, we're happy you chose us. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, um, you know, it's been a pretty good time for the podcast. Um, we've got in the, uh, the front page New and Noteworthy section of iTunes. Um, you know, thank you so much for all the, the rating and reviews and support. Um, and at this point we really want to try to kind of capitalize on that. You know, um, I don't pretend to know how iTunes, uh, what kind of bizarre alchemy they use to, to figure out who's going to be where. Um, but it would help us out a lot if you wanted to, uh, you know, rate or review us on iTunes. If you listen to that, if you hate iTunes, I know some of you do. Um, if you just want to tell people about it, who you think would like the show, um, it would, be a huge favor for us. It would help us out a lot. A lot of our episodes, um, and by a lot, I mean, I think two of them, um, are short enough to be burned onto a CD. Um, that is a great way to give it to a friend. Uh, you know, that way you just like, here, check this out. As opposed to saying, go to iTunes and subscribe to this. It's a, it's a much easier way to kind of transfer, uh, your enthusiasm for the show from one person to another. So bu- bug your friends about it. That is uh, that's the way that these projects really kind of thrive um, by the participation and the word of mouth, all of which is uh, so greatly appreciated. And uh, going one step further, if you uh, if you like the show and and you've already rated and reviewed it and you just can't get enough of us, uh, we both do some other shows. Um, if you go to www.duckfeed.tv, you can listen to uh, Cole's other shows. He does a show called Stand Under the Don't Tree and Riddle Me This. It's a, a modern video game <laughs> shows with kind of a roundtable format uh, that's really excellent. He also does a comedy podcast called Those Damn Ross Kids with his brother, 
which is uh, hilarious, and produces a show called The Misadventures of Sherlock Jones, which is kind of a radio serial that he's producing for a friend, and all three are well worth your time. And if you like Gary, you can go check out deadideavalhalla.com and listen to his um, variety show featuring a bunch of his original music. I also, I don't think I've ever said it before, but I also do the music at the beginning and end of this show. Yes, you do. Um, and uh, kind of speaking of music, I wanted to, so my main kind of flagship podcast is kind of a transitional period right now, but I have a lot of older shows I did and of particular interest to listeners of this show. And I don't know why I didn't think about cross-promoting this before, but I did a three episode run with uh, uh, my friend John on a, a show called Game Genies in the Morning with Gator Boy and the Madman, which is uh, like a, a look into an alternate universe where morning shock DJs play video game music. So we're both two morning zoo radio people but we just play old video game music so there's three episodes it kind of the, it's a three episode arc it kind of tells a story on its own and uh if you like old game music um you know or i guess specifically if you like the old game music i like um you'll, you'll like that show so, so all of that is stuff that you can do in the meantime but i think you know most importantly what we would uh advise you nay implore you to do demand you just please I do demand it. you i i am not i'm i'm not gonna restart I'm not going to reload a game, but I, I will uh, I will do my best to watch out for fireballs. I, mean, I think between the two, yeah, will be good. I was—I I, kind of wanted to make some kind of joke about how this guy just looks like he's going to make the clog in the drain worse, <laughs> but I didn't want to offend any Italian Americans. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm pretty sure if Mario got actually got in your drain, he would just uh, come up, you know, kind of waxed and and everything, and that drain would would no longer work. It, it turn he turned sinks into basins. <laughs> And the bird, bird baths. <laughs> it's his magic power. Oh, man, that's the outro.